Father God, thank you for the opportunity to gather and to worship you. And uh, we are mindful of the fact that you are present here with us. We're also mindful of the fact, Lord, that we can largely be unaware of that. Uh, we can go through our days in ways that uh, we're, <laughs> we're not very cognizant of, of your power, of your presence, of your working in our lives and working in the circumstances and the challenges around us. Father, uh, please cure us from that blindness. We would ask this morning as we, uh, as we study together that you would speak to us and encourage and challenge as only you are able to do, you, your spirit and your word. In all of this, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen? Amen. Well, we are looking today at another story from the Old Testament book of Judges. Uh, this story too raises the question, how big is your God? That's the question we talked about last week. This, that's the series we're in. How big is your God? Last week we said that how you answer that question has all kinds of consequences, all kinds of ramifications in our life. Our story this week raises the question of whether God is big enough to be able to use the weak to overcome the strong, strong meaning the oppressor, the one who's in a position of power, in a position of control. Is your God big enough to be someone who can overcome that kind of strong person? Uh, before we dive into that story though, I wanna say a word just about how to read the Bible and how to read in particular a book like the book of Judges because if you've ever read the book of Judges, it's a weird book. It's strange, the stories in there. Often in our day, people think the Bible is just kind of a, uh, a dull book. It's a book about morals and rules and things of that nature, what to do, what not to do. But understand, it would not have, the book of Judges would not have been read that way by its original audience. The book of Judges was to that audience and to that time a lot more like we tend to think of an action movie. So we will want to approach this story that we're going to look at this morning that way. It's like the Marvel superhero universe. You have some good characters uh, like Iron Man with his impenetrable suit of iron or Thor, the Scandinavian god with the war hammer. In Judges, a lot like in an action movie, the heroes are basically fighting for the good side. But they themselves are very flawed. They are not perfect and they don't pretend to be. They're often prone to anger. They're prone to ego. They're prone to jealousy. And so the action is often dark. It's morally complex and ambiguous in the book of Judges. People sometimes don't understand that the biblical writers are very capable of giving clear moral instruction when it's time to do that. And they do in many places. But in narratives like the book of Judges, uh, they often make the reader work through what's good what's bad, what's mixed, because of course our lives are like that. All these things coming at us, what's good, what's bad, what's mixed. In the book of Judges, the bad guys are really bad. Even though there is a moral arc to the universe for sure, uh, in the book of Judges, things are bad. The darkness of human actions is very clear. Evil is present, but so is good. The kingdom of God is present and at work. The book of Judges would have been read with the same kind of excitement and delight by ancient audiences that we sometimes give to movies that have characters like Thor and like Iron Man or whoever. 
but with the knowledge that behind the scenes, understand, God is at work in actual human history. Because of course, he is. In real life, we're not talking about comic book characters. So slowly but surely, God means to teach Israel and eventually all of humanity that there is a moral and spiritual reality undergirding this world. And finding it and conforming ourselves to it is the ultimate battle for all of us. So that's the book of Judges, kind of like an action movie with really deep mixed stuff going on underneath, all kinds of undercurrents. And here in our story, God has delivered Israel, of course, already from slavery in Egypt. They went through the wilderness. That was a 40-year period. They've entered into the promised land, but there is no king over Israel, not at this point in their history. Uh, and yet they have lots, and I mean lots, of challenging problems. Last week, when we looked at the story of Gideon, the problems were called Midianites. Uh, this week, it's something different. In Judges chapter 4, we read this. And the people of Israel again, that's a sad word, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Now, Ehud was a, the previous judge. Ehud provided deliverance for the people of Israel. There was peace in the land. Uh, people were following and worshiping Jehovah God, Yahweh, uh, but not now, because again, they are doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord. This is uh, the recurring cycle of the book of Judges that we talked about. Israel is in the promised land, but it gets idolatrous. It becomes corrupt. God gives them over to their enemies. They suffer severely. And in that process, in their suffering, they cry out to God, God, save us, they cry. And they pray. And God sends a deliverer. And in this book, these deliverers are called judges. And Israel gets liberated and they experience peace and they experience prosperity. And then they get self-sufficient again. Their gaze is turned away from God and onto other gods, small g. They forget about God. They become idolatrous. And sadly, this cycle in the book of Judges just keeps repeating itself. And that's the story of the book of Judges. It's a dark story, actually. Now, we're going to look at just one particular cycle. They've been idolatrous again. Uh, they forgot about God. They've become corrupt. And so we read Judges 4.2, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The Canaanites are the bad guys in this story. Uh, in any good story, there's often kind of a recurring image that you want to watch for. And that is the case in our story. The Israelites are sold into the hand that idea of the hand uh, is going to be an important idea. We'll come back to that. The hand, it's a theme or an image that you'll want to watch for. King Jabin had a general, and the general's name is Sisera. Sisera is an arch villain. He's the arch villain of this story. Think Hitler. Think Bin Laden. Think Stalin or whoever you want to put into that category. And then we read, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he had 900 chariots of iron. This is Sisera. And he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years, 20 years. So the bad guys in this story have Iron Age technology. And that's very relevant because understand Israel does not have Iron Age technology, not at this point in their history. And so iron chariots are the problem. Iron is the enemy that you cannot defeat. If you do not have iron technology, you lose every time. And that's the situation here in our story. General Sisera is kind of the, an iron man, but he's, uh, he's the bad guy in this story. 
Sisera was cruel. He was oppressive. He was vile and in lots and lots of different ways. We'll see some of those ways in a moment. So Israel has trouble. Israel needs a hero. Israel needs someone of tremendous strength, tremendous courage, tremendous faith. Israel needs somebody who would rather die than grovel. And in the hill country of Israel, there is such a hero. This is what we read. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at this time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and she summoned Barak, uh, the son of Abinoam. This is kind of interesting. This is a little twist you maybe weren't expecting. Israel is being led in this crisis by a woman. Sometimes people think, according to the Bible, that women are not supposed to lead men. Uh, But here one is. Sometimes people think it's okay for women to lead in certain limited areas, but at home, you know, they have to be led, of course, by their husbands. Well, here the text tells us quite deliberately that Deborah was the wife of Libidoth. And uh, so a kind of a little logical syllogism here, Deborah was leading Israel, A. Proposition B, uh, Lapidoth was part of Israel. Uh, Conclusion C, therefore Deborah was leading Lapidoth. Are you with me so far? And this is God's doing. This is God's choosing. I wonder how she responded and what God called her. I wonder if any part of Deborah was thinking, no, God, I I cannot do this. This is a job for boys, not me. I'm not strong enough for this job. This requires a different makeup than my makeup. If Deborah said that or if she thought that, we don't know. But I can tell you this, if she did, I'm sure that God reassured her that he knew what he was doing. Uh, He had made women just like he makes men. And in this case, he was not calling her husband to lead. He was calling Deborah. Not Gideon, not Samson, not Joshua. He was calling Deborah. And God had his reasons, which we know none of, but God had his reasons. Now, just a little aside here. Do you know God is calling you right now? He is. Male or female, doesn't matter. God has a great battle for you to engage in. It's in the war we call life. In our lives that we live, there are all kinds of challenges and battles that we fight. God has a call on you, male or female, to fight that battle. And it may or may not look dramatic to anybody else, but it is there. And in that battle, you are called to follow him. You are called to trust in him. You are called to obey him and to honor him because that is what a hero does. A hero doesn't necessarily win every battle. But a hero trusts, a hero obeys, a hero honors honors God. You are meant to be the hero in your battles. Now, in this story, God calls Deborah to be a warrior hero. And that's so odd because she's a woman and women are weaker than men. Am I right? (laughs) How to divide the congregation very quickly. Well, just, just arm wrestle right now. If there's a woman near you, arm wrestle. And I hope, I hope you're able to beat her. I mean, I don't know, you know. It's very interesting too. We're also told that Deborah is a prophet. Now this is not normal. Uh, to be a judge, to be a prophet, and to be a warrior, this is a unique combination. Deborah was a major multitasker. 
uh, very unique character in scripture. Anyway, we're told that Deborah sends for Barak and Barak is the military general at this time. Everybody looks to him for military leadership. Deborah summons him to summons someone as an act of a person who is in authority. And being a woman, you might expect Deborah to go to Barak and tactfully offer him a suggestion, make him think it was his idea. You know how men are. Uh, but she does not do this. She summons Barak. And she tells Barak to take 10,000 soldiers to the Kishon River. Uh, the Kishon River is actually a dried up wadi. It's a river basin that flows with water only occasionally only when there's a flood or a downpour, then it becomes a river, a serious river. But at this point, it's an old dried up wadi. And she says to General Sisera, she says, or she says to uh, General Barak, that General Sisera will be there, the evil iron man with his 900 iron chariots. And she tells General Barak, God will deliver Sisera into your hand. And there's that word again. This idea of hands, it'll come up again. The audience would be loving this so far. Uh, and the audience would expect, of course, that Barak, Israel's general, is going to be the hero. Uh, I mean, this is going to be the moment when Thor picks up the hammer and says, you know, game on, you know, that's what they would expect. But Barak does not say what everyone would expect him to say. He says something nobody would expect at this point, actually. We read in Judges 4, if he says this to Deborah, he says, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Really, Barack? Really? A girl? You need a girl to go with you? Girls cannot fight, Barack. There are whole books written by Christian authors in our day that say boys are made to be warriors and girls are made to be rescued. And uh, it turns out the Bible's not one of those books. In the Bible, we read this, certainly, certainly I will go with you, Deborah says to Barak. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. There's that word again, hands. Hold on to that. In any great action story, and you all know this to be true, the, the final showdown has to be between the hero, right? And the villain. Good guy versus bad guy. Batman versus Joker. David versus Goliath. Superman versus Lex Luthor. Not Lois Lane versus Lex Luthor. Lois Lane is gonna be the rescuee, not the rescuer. But here in this odd story that we have in the Bible, Barack is not going to be the hero at all. That's a surprise. It was then, it still is today as we read it. In fact, the hero is going to be a woman and the listeners then, uh, just like now, expect that hero to be Deborah, of course. And so Barak calls the troops, Deborah goes up with him as uh, Barak had asked and the armies are in place, the battle is about to happen. Everybody's waiting for the moment. It's like uh, we're watching a movie and the, there's this big climactic battle. Everybody is excited. There is going to be a, uh, this huge uh, fight that takes place. The bad guys are going to get what's coming to them. It'll be blood and gore and spears and swords and horses and maiming and gouging and beheading and death. I mean, what could be better? Except that's not what happens. They all know it's coming, but it doesn't. Here's the next line in the story. Now, Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. 
and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zananim, which is near Kadesh. So the audience is thinking, who cares? You know, who's this guy? And why should I care about where Heber the Kenite pitches his tent? What, what has that got to do with the story? And the story gets even stranger. Uh, there is a battle. Israel wins the battle against General Sisera, but the battle hardly gets a mention in chapter four. In fact, it's not described till the next chapter when we get to what's called the Song of Deborah in chapter five. And there we find that God sends a rainstorm, a detail left out of chapter four. God sends a rainstorm and that dry wadi, the Kishon River, suddenly becomes a river. It's flooded. And the iron chariots that uh, make General Sisera so tough suddenly become a huge liability in this battle. Turns out that in floods, iron chariots bog down. Uh, Horses get stuck and the bad guys lose and the good guys win. That's what happens, but it hardly gets a mention in chapter four. To make matters even worse, General Sisera, the arch villain, gets away on foot. And he comes to a tent, the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Oh, okay. And now we have another woman in this story of battles. A little background. Uh, the Kenites were not part of Israel. Uh, they were not the good guys. Uh, they were actually tent dwellers. They were nomads, which was a little bit like uh, calling someone a gypsy, calling someone a hillbilly. Uh, you know, you weren't very cultured. You certainly weren't very powerful. You weren't very important if you were just a nomad. Polite people wouldn't call you uh, a nomad to your face. Uh, the tribe, this tribe actually too, had an alliance with the bad guys, Jabin, king of Canaan. They had made an alliance with him. And so Jael, the wife of Heber, says this to General Sisera. She says, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into her tent and she covered him with a rug or with a blanket, a covering. And uh, he's thirsty. He asks her for a drink and she gives him some milk to drink. It's an act of kindness. And he lays down to sleep. It's been a bad day for him so far. And she covers him with a blanket. Now, if you've ever watched a movie, you know that anytime somebody goes to sleep and another person covers them with a blanket, that's kind of a tender moment. It demonstrates the compassion of the blanket spreader, right? Am I right? Some of you think so. So we understand this woman, JL, has a tender heart. She's covering General Sisera. And then Sisera says to Jael, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say no, say no. He's saying, stand guard in case a man comes because then my life would be threatened. So stand guard and lie for me if need be. And so Sisera feels now that he is safe enough to take a nap because he knows that it would take a man, quite a man, quite a man to bring him down. And so Sisera falls asleep. He's had his milk, he's got his blanket and a woman is keeping watch. (laughs) Just saying. The story continues. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. And then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. Did not see that coming. 
this little weak hillbilly gypsy lady, not even a part of Israel, picks up the mighty hammer. Turns out in this story, you know, Thor is a woman. Who saw that coming, right? And she picks up this tent peg, drives the nail into the evil general's temple right through his skull. Are you getting this, boys and girls? This Bible story? Yeah. Right into his brain, clear out the back of his skull, all the way into the ground. And I mean this in the most literal sense. She nails him. And this is in the Bible. Now, in case you're wondering how serious this injury might have been, the text actually tells us that she drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. No kidding. Probably the three most unnecessary words in all of scripture, perhaps. I don't know. And in case anybody missed this, in the next verse, Barak uh, shows up and comes by the tent. Jael invites him into the tent. Moment of tension. And so he went into her tent and there lay Sisera dead, we read, with the tent peg in his temple. And just in case somebody wasn't paying attention yet, uh, here's what we read in the next chapter, chapter five. And this is, of course, the poetic summary of what's happened. This is uh, the, the song of Deborah. And this is what we read. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water and she gave him milk. She brought him curds and a noble's bowl. What a servant. This is the weaker serving the stronger. She sent her hand to the, she sent her hand to the uh, tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Got it? Sisera has bought the farm. He has bit the big one. He has kicked the bucket. He has cashed in his chips. He is worm food. He is taking a dirt nap. He is pushing up daisies. What a shock to Sisera because he knew only a man, quite a man could take him down. And I think the last thing to enter his mind, other than the tent peg, was the thought that he would never, ever, ever be defeated by a weak and powerless and insignificant woman. You think? You have to understand, when that audience is hearing this story written and retold, they're thrilled. I mean, this is a dark story. It's a bloody story. It's one that your children are hearing right now downstairs in the children's <laughs> ministry. But get this, the audience is cheering anyway. Why? Because you see, evil doesn't win. And the truth in life is we see evil win all too often, or at least it seems to. But not here. Evil does not win. The injustice of the oppressor does not have the last word. Something in us loves that. Something God put in us. You see, for all the moral darkness and the ambiguity in our world, there is still a moral arc to our universe. There are consequences to our actions. Sisera had been a bad man for a long time. And if you wanna know how bad, we get a glimpse of this at the very end of chapter five. 
This is Deborah's song again, and she's very artfully constructed this piece. She imagines what happened back at Sisera's home when he doesn't come back on time. She creates a kind of fictional moment. Sisera's mom, the general's mom, is waiting and looking out the window, longing for her son to come back from the battle. She's sure that he has won, but he's late, and she's wondering where he is. One of the servants says to her, Judges 5, have they, that is Sisera and the boys, the soldiers, have they not found and divided the spoil, a womb or two for every man? A womb or two? These are women we're talking about. Diminished to just a body part. A woman or two for every man? That's how Cicero rolls. The act of assaulting innocent women who are made and loved by God has been a frequent part of war from the very beginning of time right up to the present. Even in our vastly enlightened world. There's a scholar, his name is Mark Thomas, does research in this area. He says that sexual assault continues to be used as a strategic tool of war and genocide today, right now. This day, in our world, 80% of all refugees and displaced persons of war are women. A woman or two for each man. And these are real people who lived several thousand years ago with real daughters, real sisters, real moms we're talking about. And you see, that's what sin does. That's what evil does. That's what this man Sisera and his soldiers do. And that's part of what God was saving his people from, just a part of what he was saving them from. And that's why the people were cheering, you see. They're saying, not this time, buddy. This time you get what you deserve. Justice is being served. God delivers justice. Amen is right. And then Deborah's song ends. You see, when God delivers justice and deals wholly, completely, and fully in that moment with the problem of sin, guess what happens? Peace for 40 years. And the land had rest for 40 years. Now, of course, this is just one of many stories in the Old Testament that involve exile and suffering and repentance and deliverance and justice. God was always showing Israel and us, I might add, that our real battle is fought most often against the things of evil. And frankly, most often with things like prayer and suffering, love, not tent pegs and hammers, not usually. But the darkness of the world and the battle of good versus evil, it's really a battle of God versus evil. Do you understand that? I mean, God is the embodiment of good, yes? The battle of God versus evil, it goes on and on and on and on. Holly and I decided some time ago that we wanted to participate in a ministry called International Justice Mission. So we support them in prayer. We support them financially. This is a ministry that's constantly waging war against things like uh, sex trafficking, slavery, which is rampant today in our world injustice to the poor. They're always opposing and battling these things wherever these things raise their ugly head. There are men and women in that ministry that are wholly dedicated to this all over the world and at great risk to their own lives, often. 
a point, uh, you know, sometimes I, I think my life has problems or I, I think I'm going through hard stuff and then I'll get a, a newsletter from International Justice Mission that's talking about women who've been literally enslaved in sex trafficking situations, how they escape and how some of them turn back to go back and liberate some of their friends or members of their family. It's amazing. The point is the need for heroes is not passed. Maybe God is calling you to be a Deborah. There's a Christian scholar named Elaine Storkey. She wrote a book called Scars Across Humanity. The subtext, the subtitle is Understanding and Overcoming Violence Against Women. You see, this is our world today too. Not, not just Deborah's world way back then, right? Storkey writes this, and I quote, acts of violence to women aged between 15 to 44 across the globe produce more deaths, disability, and mutilation than cancer, malaria, and traffic accidents combined. From selective abortion to domestic abuse to genital mutilation to sexual assault, it is epidemic in our world, he says, and it often, it's very deeply embedded in our cultures from top to bottom, from presidents to movie moguls, from pastors to priests, it's a problem. You'd think the church would be the greatest champion for women, but often it is not. Again, a study cited by Elaine Storkey, she, said she found that 95% of Christian women who go to Christian churches, say they have never heard a sermon declaring abuse to be wrong. Wow. And sometimes the church has been worse than just silent. Some of you may have seen that this happened not long ago, a prominent church leader who said that he believed that if a woman is being physically abused in her marriage by a husband, that woman should remain in the home and submit to further violence. That's what he said. And I heard that and I thought, are you kidding me? That's not biblical. That's not godly. That is not Christ-like. That is not God's will. That is not right. Let me say, if you are in a marriage or a relationship and there is physical aggression and you are the victim of abuse, get out, get safe. Talk to one of us here at the church. We'll do all we can to help. That is not right. Violence against victims, strong against weak, is evil and it's wrong. The abuse of power for sexual gratification is evil and it is wrong. It is against God's will. And the church ought to be the first and the loudest, I think, to say so. We live in a world of injustice and darkness and sin. And that's part of what the book of Judges uh, paints in ways that as we read it, a lot of times it makes us uncomfortable. You see, the writers of scripture intend for that to be the case, to make us uncomfortable. They all agree that in this world, a great battle rages, God against evil. 
And I wonder what battle God is calling you to fight. It's probably not going to involve a hammer and tent pegs and things like that. Probably not. But God has been and is very patient, very long-suffering in his efforts to teach us about this battle. It's painted throughout Scripture. And this battle against evil, of course, reached its climax many centuries ago, after, long after Deborah, long after J.L., with a man named Jesus, who, by the way, freely laid aside his superpowers, right? And let a big Roman soldier pick up a hammer and some nails and drive them through his hands and feet. And there's that whole image again. Into whose hand are you delivered? Because you see the real ultimate battle, we know, if you follow Jesus, you know that that battle has been won. We don't experience the fullness of it yet. And so we still see evil persist. But the battle has been won, the war has been won, and it's been won by nail-scarred hands on a cross. Jesus won that battle not by inflicting more violence and hate, which is the way our action heroes go about winning victories, battles, and so, but instead by bearing violence and hate in his own body. It's almost like an anti-hero in terms of the heroes that we worship sometimes. You see, Jesus overcame hate with love and violence with compassion and sin with forgiveness. That is, you see, the really big story of our really big God. The heavenly father raised Jesus up on the third day. That was the, that was the evidence. The ultimate victory has been won. Now it's being applied. And if you follow Jesus, you know, uh, you are now part of this battle and the battle of course is waged out there and in here, isn't it? The battle between good and evil rages inside every single one of us. The whole process of discipleship is one of becoming more like Jesus so that my desires, my wants, the things I pursue, the way I use my time, the way I prioritize my life looks more and more and more like Jesus, or at least it should. So that the battle against evil will be won. Not just out there, but even in here, you see. Paul put it like this. He says, uh, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. People are not the enemy, you see. But against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness that exists in the world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And these powers are real powers, not comic book powers. If you will, they, they are the iron chariots of our day. The things that, you know, you and I cannot defeat. We will not overcome them on our own, not ever. But with Jesus, with our big God, we will overcome. We can change and we can change out there. We will. We will win. Question. What battle is Jesus calling you to fight in this battle against evil, whether it's evil in here or evil out there? Maybe your battle is against an addiction. That's a dark battle. That's a difficult 
battle. Anyone that's ever wrestled with addiction knows that how difficult, how helpless you are. Let me say this, Jesus will be with you if you follow him. Maybe God is calling you to fight a battle against anxiety or things like depression, debilitating kinds of things. Some of the greatest heroes I know, admire and love are fighting that battle and hardly anybody knows they are except God himself. That can be a lonely battle. Maybe you're fighting to save a marriage or to reconcile a relationship with a child. Maybe God is calling you to stand with the most vulnerable people in our midst, homeless people, immigrants, frightened children, unborn babies, people experiencing abuse. What you need to know when you are called to the battle is that you do not fight alone. Because if you fight alone, you're gonna lose. If you fight with Jesus, you're going to win. The victory is coming. There's a wonderful ending to this story. Uh, our story in Judges chapter five, again, is called the, the Song of Deborah. Interestingly, it's a whole chapter of the Bible written by a woman. You ever thought about that? It's a beautiful poem of profound theological reflection, actually. You ought to read it this afternoon. It's not a rhymy little Hallmark card kind of sentiment. Oh, Sisera is dead while lying in his bed because a woman took a hammer and she nailed him in the head. <laughs> it's not that. <laughs> Thank God, right? It's not that. <laughs> The essence of Deborah's song declares profoundly that it is God who won the victory. That's so important and so profound. It is God who was fighting the battle for the Israelites, for Barak and the soldiers. It was God that caused the deliverance. She describes it this way. She says, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord. Even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Remember, that's a statement being made in the context of a people who are constantly going after other gods, constantly wanting other gods to deliver them, provide for them, do something for them. And Deborah says, you know, the mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. You know, our big God loves to use people who our world thinks are marginal at best. Weak people, powerless people. God loves to use those kinds of people to win battles because you see his strength is made perfect in weakness. There is a big God, bigger than old general Sisera, bigger than his chariots of iron, bigger than your addiction, bigger than your failure, bigger than your disease, bigger than your problem. I promise you this is true. God is bigger than the battles you face. He is bigger than oppression, bigger than injustice. He is bigger than evil. And he will give you courage to fight if you ask. And he will give you wisdom to fight if you ask. 
And he will give you love to love people that don't deserve loving if you ask. These are the tools that we use in fighting this battle for good, for God. You see, that battle will be won because friends, I'm gonna keep saying it. Our God is a big, big God. How big is your God? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you know all about the battle everybody here is fighting, big or small, public or private. Whether they're feeling like they're filled with resources or feeling alone and perhaps even inadequate, you know. Heavenly Father, for all of us who are followers of Jesus, we place our lives this moment in your hands. All of us know what it is to go up against iron chariots. Father, help us. Help us not to trust in our own strength or our own power or our own courage or our own resources. Help us to trust in Jesus, the one who was weak for us, the one who took us in his nail-scarred hands. Help us, God, fight the battle well for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.